Welcome to RBG Beyond Notorious. This is the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the CNN film RBG and explores the life of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I'm Poppy Harlow, and I'm joined by CNN's chief legal analyst, Jeffrey Tubin. And in our last episode, we talked with Eugene Scalia about the very special friendship between his father and RBG that dates back to the 80s. In this 70s episode, we'll hear from Stephen Weisenfeld and Sharon Cohen, whose gender discrimination cases RBG fought in front of the Supreme Court. She sat me at the table with her. She had never before had a client sit at the table and hadn't done it afterward. I was the only client to ever sit there. I was not introduced, and she just wanted to show the nine male or the eight male justices what a male looked like when he was the plaintiff. I realized that I wasn't getting the housing allowance that men were getting, married men were getting. And it was not insignificant. So Jeffrey Tubin, she is this flaming feminist litigator uh, in in the 70s and in the midst of the the women's movement and the fight for equality. Um, women are fighting for equal pay, the opportunity to serve in equal jobs to men. This is uh, Roe versus Wade time. This is quite a moment in American history. You know, uh, my mother, Marlene Sanders, yeah. was a contemporary of Justice Ginsburg's in many respects, and she was a uh, flaming feminist a journalist. There And one of the things she always reminded me was, you know, a lot of people think the 60s were the time of liberal change in America. Mm -hmm. But she said for women, the 70s were the decade that really matters. The 60s was the Civil Rights Revolution. You had the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act. But women were not really at the center of that movement. But it was really in the 1970s. Uh, that uh, women's rights became a national uh, fixation. Uh, 1973, of course, is Roe v. Wade, uh, when the Supreme Court's decided 7-2 to that states could no longer ban uh, abortion. Um, At the same time, um, women, in many respects, led by Ruth Bader Ginsburg, were trying to uh, undo all the other forms of discrimination against women, the likes of which are even hard to imagine today because they seem so ancient in their uh, in their uh, approach. You know, women couldn't get credit cards independent of their husbands. Women couldn't buy real estate independent uh, of their husbands. You know, child custody cases. I mean, it, it was just it, it was all over the, the law books of the states of the federal government that men and women were treated differently. Ruth Ginsburg was the leading pioneer of of women's rights, um, and that's why she will be a major figure in American legal history, even without right. considering her service as a judge. She ran the women's uh, the women's rights project at at the ACLU. Gloria Steinem said about her, "Ruth's work made me feel I was protected by the Constitution." For the first time, but it was challenging for her because often she would be fighting these cases and presenting them in front of all male judges. So, as as she was throughout her career in the U.S. Supreme Court, right? Um, it wasn't until 1981 when Sandra Day O'Connor was appointed, the first woman to the court, mm-hmm. that there was a, a woman on the Supreme Court. So every time she argued to the Supreme Court, all men. Uh, it was an all male bench. And as she argued in lower courts, it was almost the same thing. Here's what she told me about it when we sat down back in February. The challenge 
in those now ancient days was to, to get judges to understand that there was such a thing as gender-based discrimination. The, the thought was that women are sheltered, that they are protected, that they are cared for by their men, so they're sheltered from working at night. They're sheltered from being police officers, firefighters. And that notion, or men would think of themselves as good husbands, good fathers. Mm -hmm. And Brennan was responding to that. He said, uh, when he said the pedestal on which women have been thought to stand, more often than not, turns out to be a cage. Explain that important argument by, by Justice Brennan that she's talking about there. Well, you know, th this was why arguing these cases was so challenging for, for Ginsburg because a lot of these laws were portrayed and believed to be for the protection of women, right. not discrimination against women. Now, when, when, when African-Americans were told they couldn't ride in the front of the bus, no one thought that was for their protection. But when women were told you can't be a police officer, you can't be a firefighter, uh, you can't have a job where you have to work at night, that was thought an act of solicitude, mm -hmm. not an act of discrimination. But she, uh, Justice Ginsburg here is quoting uh, Justice William Brennan in an early women's rights opinion where he said, the pedestal, you know, putting women as mm -hmm. actually a cage, that when you tell women for your own benefit you can't do this job because it's too dangerous, you are actually penalizing them. You're not protecting them. She argued six cases before the Supreme Court. She won five. She won five. What stands out? Well, what stands out, and uh, we have someone particularly well-suited we to uh, discuss this, is that Ginsburg understood that the all nine men on the Supreme Court uh, might not identify with women plaintiffs, but they might identify with men who suffered from these gender-based discriminations, that several of these cases actually involved laws, state rules, that, again, treated men and women differently and, in mm -hmm. fact, disadvantaged men, um, which was more likely to get uh, the, ju the justices' attention. Now, it was never any doubt what Justice Ginsburg's ultimate objective was, which was to get equal rights for women. Mm -hmm. But by focusing on cases where men had been disadvantaged by gender differences in the law— mm -hmm. She she made a, a lot of progress. You're talking about the man who is sitting here with us right now. So let me bring into the program Stephen Weisenfeld. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you very much for having me. And before we dive in, just set up this case for us, will you, Jeff? Well, what, I mean, th this case is so personal and so extraordinary. I mean, it's such an incredibly dramatic story. Uh, with all due respect, I think we should let Stephen tell Fair how this, uh, how, how, you know, th this is, of course, a major American landmark, but it's rooted in a personal tragedy in your life. Mm. Well, uh, yes, what happened is, is that my wife passed away in childbirth and in, in, uh, way back in 1972. And when I went to the Social Security office to collect a widow's benefit, they said that it wasn't available to me because I'm not a widow. 
I'm a widower. Mm. And I asked uh, what would happen if I appealed it because Social Security had an appeals process that you could use. And the clerk that I was talking to just said, well, you would just lose anyway. So uh, at that particular point, I just went home and tried to think about ways to pursue this kind of thing. And here you're a dad, and you've just lost your, your beloved, your wife, and you have a baby son, Jason Paul. And you're thinking, how am I going to be the two parents? How am I going to provide for him and my family? And then you're being told, no, because you're a man. You can't, you're not afforded the same benefits. How did Ruth Ginsburg get involved in the case? Yeah, how did yeah. she see okay. that? Okay, Ruth was teaching at uh, Rutgers University. Um, this letter is in the New Brunswick Home News. Rutgers is in New Brunswick. I live in Edison, which is across the Raritan River from New Brunswick, so that's my local newspaper. And there was this article in early November now, so some months have passed by, that talked about alternate lifestyles. And I thought to myself, well, I can use this alternate lifestyle idea to indicate what problem I'm having, and maybe somebody will see that and, and put, point me in the right direction. Well, it turned out that a woman named Phyllis Zaitlin Boring, who was also a professor at uh, Rutgers University, knew Ruth, and uh, they also they had started a, an organization called Wheel, Women's Equal Action League, together. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was uh, Ruth, uh, uh, Phyllis Zaitlin Boring, who contacted me, via mail and asked me if I'd like to pursue this case further. And I pointed out to her in the letter, returnal letter, that that's exactly what I would like to do. That's why I wrote the letter, <laughs> hoping somebody like you would uh, direct me in the right, point me in the right direction. So she put me in touch with Ruth. That, that, that's how I got to know Ruth. And, and what did Ruth say? I mean, what, what were your interactions with her like? Ruth's uh, uh, first telephone conversation took place sometime in early December. And and she asked, uh, told me all about what she was, what the plan was, what she was going to do, how how uh, uh, she was going to approach things, and she asked some very important questions because I had to be uh, situated in a position so that I would be able to collect the benefit. So at that particular point in time, I was. Uh, some of the things were: was the infant child in my care? Well, he was. Uh, was I earning more than a certain amount of money? At this particular point, I had a business. I sold the business to be able to stay home and take care of Jason a little bit, mm-hmm. and I w- was not yet re-employed anyplace, so I didn't, didn't uh, have an income at that particular point. Uh, so uh, that was an important qualification. Another one was is that, that the, uh, the, the spouse that passed away, my wife, had been working and paying money into the Social Security system, which she had. She was a school teacher and was paying maximum contributions into Social Security for seven years at that point. And uh, so all those, all those qualifications were, were met that she was looking for. And uh, uh, we got together then in February, and she filed in a three-judge federal court, which was in Trenton, which we were heard in Trenton in June. This is 1973 now, and uh, uh, they, took, they took some time to to uh, decide their opinion. At the point where, when uh, we were at that three-judge federal court in June, I was uh, employed and earning a lot of money at that particular point, and I really didn't qualify to be in that court because the United States Attorney pointed out that the minimum remedy had to be $10,000, and I was earning more money than it would allow me. I would not be allowed to collect any mm. Social Security benefit. So that was very disturbing to me. Uh, and I, I really didn't want to stop this case from going forward because it uh, had a lot of meaning to me, not just because I would stand to receive a benefit. Uh, my benefit was going to be $206 a month. It, mm-hmm. didn't, it didn't really have that much meaning. But one of the reasons why I was here is because for seven years my wife had been putting money into the Social Security system. Where did that money go? Mm. Women were paying into the system. 
and the money got lost. And this was in the age of equal rights, and so my, I was very aware of, of these kinds of things at the time. Uh, the Equal Rights Amendment uh, was, was nev never uh, approved. And I was living in New Jersey, and New Jersey turned it down. Mm -hmm. So the amendment never passed. So the money she was paying in was important. Um, and later on in the story, uh, uh, there are, uh, of course, my benefit, the son, and, and the way the Supreme Court ruled mm -hmm. is, is so, important. But, did you win in the three-judge panel? Uh, so, so I did win. All three justices voted in my favor. Um, so the, the servants, to, to me at that particular point, backing up to what I was talking about, is that uh, when I heard that happening, I managed to lose my job. Mm. And uh, uh, so, the, so the case would be able to go forward. And uh, um, I didn't tell anybody I was doing it for that purpose because uh, That's interesting. Ruth would not let me do it uh, just so she, she could handle the case. Right. And my parents, I was a young man at the time. My parents were still, still alive. They would not let me, let, let me give up a job to mm. collect a $200 a month benefit. Right. But you did. But I did. So, so this I makes did. its way to the Supreme Court. And uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is the one to argue your case in front of the court. The night before she is going to to um, she calls you the night before she's going to argue this in front of the court. And um, you end up sitting beside her as she does. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But I just want people to listen and hear part of her oral argument. This absolute exclusion based on gender per se operates to the disadvantage of female workers, their surviving spouses, and their children. It denies the female worker social insurance family coverage of the same quality as the coverage available under the account of a male worker. It denies the surviving spouse of a female worker the opportunity to care personally for his child, an opportunity afforded the surviving spouse of a male worker, and it denies the motherless child an opportunity for parental care afforded the fatherless child. What did she tell you, Stephen, about her strategy and about having you sit right there next to her? Uh, the, the night before, we had a telephone conversation in which she told me that she felt that we were going to get uh, a 4-4 affirmation, Justice Douglas not sitting at the time, and 4-4 was enough to affirm the lower court's uh, decision. And she, in order to do that, she wanted to be sure that she got Potter Stewart's vote. And her argument was, was, was uh, phrased in terms that Potter Stewart had used in some of the decisions that he wrote, so that uh, she would be talking directly to him most of the time while she was, was making her argument, and she was uh, as Potter Stewart's vote that she was looking for. And the next day, she sat me at the table with her, she had never before had a client sit at the table and hadn't done it afterward. I was the only client to ever sit there. I was not introduced, and she just wanted to show the nine male or the eight male justices what a male looked like when he was the plaintiff. So great, but it didn't turn out to be 4-4. It turned out to be 8 nothing. turned out to be 8 nothing, and boy, was, we were all surprised at that. Uh, there were three different uh, uh, opinions handed down. There was, there was uh, the one that felt it was discrimination against the, the woman because she paid the money into Social Security. There was uh, part of that group con concurred with, it, with that it was discrimination against the male uh, who, who uh, was denied the opportunity to collect the benefit. You. That was me. And, and just one justice, Justice Rehnquist, uh, probably the most conservative justice on the court at the time, 
uh, said it was discrimination against the baby. And uh, they always laugh about that when she tells the story. And Nina Totenberg once uh, pointed out on PBS right after the... The NPR journalist. The NPR journalist, yes, that's right. Uh, Right after uh, the the, uh, advising consent hearings for the Supreme Court uh, in 1993, that any time Justice Rehnquist sees Ruth Ginsburg walking in the hall, she always asks, how's the baby? How's the baby, she mm-hmm. said, right? Jason is, is, is long ago stopped being a baby, but Ruth Ginsburg has remained in your life and remained in Jason's life. Yes, we, we stay in touch frequently. Ruth married married my son, and he also, uh, in, in, in uh, 2014, four years ago, married my current wife, Elaine. And you. Who's outside, and, and me, and we were married at the Supreme Court. Oh. Uh, so uh, so, so we, we stay in touch with each other. In fact, we're having dinner together in two weeks. Where are you having uh, dinner? Today. Can we come? Well, uh, if you're in D.C., you could come. We're going to be in Washington. I um, venue wasn't selected yet. You really do. I mean, this this was more than just an attorney-client relationship. This developed into a decades-long friendship. And you brought with you some of the letters, uh, some of your correspondence, even recent correspondence between you and Justice Ginsburg. Mm-hmm. Want to sh- want to share some? Sure. Um, anything particular that you're that you're looking at? Yes, actually, um, the the letter dated December twenty ninth, two thousand sixteen. Uh-huh. Um, she talks about the election. Uh, she did write a sentence about the election. She said in in that letter, she said, uh, "Of course, I'm disappointed by the election results, but determined to do all I can to stay healthy at least until twenty 2020. So that that tells us a few things, Jeffrey. Um, we know because of public statements she's not a uh, fan of President Trump. It also sort of said, at least until 2020, that she doesn't think he'll get elected again, I suppose. Well, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I do think you make she's probably taking it one term at a time. I mean, she's currently 85. In 2020, um, she'll be 87. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think she's, <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, the, the numbers being what they are, I think she's probably th- thinking one one term at a time. But but I mean, knowing Ginsburg as we do, if President Trump is reelected, she'll write the same letter to Stephen and say, I'm going to try to hang on until 2024. But I mean, most Supreme Court justices wouldn't write that. No, I mean, I, I don't think so. I just want to take the opportunity to point out here that, that uh, uh, even though there's a lot of flack about what she had said, making a political comment a couple of years ago, uh, that she's not the first and only justice have, who have made political comments. She, uh, as I said, you guys keep in touch. Obviously, you're having dinner in a few weeks. She, she, she chose Asheville, North Carolina, where you live. As the location for a conference, the North Carolina Bar was hosting this in her honor. Um, and she went there along with Marty, her, her late husband, before he passed. Tell me about that. Okay. So uh, she wrote me a letter about it a year and a half before this actually took place. Mm-hmm. To, and, and, and when she's pointing out the date, she underlined it in pen on, on, on a typewritten letter. She underlined it on pen so I, I realized that it's not this. It was a, a day in November, was it? Or October. I forget what month it was. Uh, not this year, but next year, because she wrote, the letter that she wrote to me was in, was in the summertime, and uh, she came gave, for, for the conference, and uh, uh, Marty was there. Her husband Marty was there, and interesting thing happened. Uh, Marty, you know, the, the, these guys are, are they're really nice. They're very humorous people. Um, when, when one event that we had went to. Uh, I was uh, wearing a tie, and Marty wasn't. So Marty said, put, to put me at ease, why don't you take your tie off? And so, so I thought, okay, and I, and I did. 
Later that evening, we were having dinner together. So I showed up without a tie, thinking that was uh, the way that they dressed, but Marty had a tie on. So I point, immediately pointed that out. You know, now you're wearing a tie and I'm not. So he said, well, wait a second, then he just took his tie off. I thought, yeah. I thought that was really, uh, really... Making cute. you feel comfortable. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, when, when, while they were there, uh, uh, this was a conference. So a lot of people there, mostly, mm-hmm. mostly made up of attorneys at North Carolina Bar and a lot of judges, and they, they came from the faraway places as well. Uh, I had several comments from people uh, while we were there that Justice Ruth Ginsburg and, and I uh, seemed very close. That they, they, they were very impressed with the fact that I could just walk up and talk to her and I went over to the table. At, I wasn't sitting at the same table for, for dinner mm-hmm. one night when the conference was meeting. And I just walked over to the table and took out the photo album. I just leaned down and started showing her and Marty these, these, all these pictures. Yeah. And you know, judges came over to me and said, said how do you get to be so brave to sit down next to somebody so esteemed as a Supreme Court justice. And it hmm. never even occurred to me. Huh. <laughs> well, they didn't know that, you know, you were a this client. You weren't story. just some friend. Yeah. Can you, Jeff, talk about just, you know, the fact, again, this was expected to be a 4-4 decision, just uphold the lower court. It ends up being 8-0. Just how big this was for history. Well, and, and, and also just um, how important these sort of men's rights cases turned out to be. For equal rights. For, for, e- for equal rights. I mean, the, the idea that, you know, widowers didn't get treated the same way as widows mm-hmm. by the Social Security Administration. You know, another case, which is, you know, sort of a silly case, but it, it, it indicative from this period was um, Oklahoma said um, men could buy beer right. at 21, but w- 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 women, girls could buy beer at 18. Because they thought we were more responsible, were more responsible, and and they didn't, and they thought they, you know, that men were more reckless, and you know that 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 I, you know, the, the reasoning is is, is <laughs> difficult to fathom, uh, but you know, again, it was discrimination against men, but again, it it, it created, as did Stevens' case, mm-hmm. this momentum in the law that any sorts of distinctions between the the sexes. Mm-hmm. Were would be seen by the courts as unconstitutional, and that's um, and 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 that was what RBG really wanted mm-hmm. was that momentum, and it and it she by the way this was she knew exactly what she was doing here, and this was very purposeful, it presenting was. men being discriminated against to fight for equal women's rights, right? Which was not a intuitively obvious no. strategy, but. You know, as now historians are looking at, you know, Stephen, sorry to break it to you, but you're now part of history. You're not. Yeah. Uh, and and, you know, the, the history of this era has been written um, and and RBG's insight about using men to advance women's rights uh, is, is seen as one of these, you know, enormous she, she, she had the theory that, that uh, right, right from early on, she had the theory that that injustices or, or, the, or the special privileges that women had hurt everybody. And that didn't just put the women at, at, on a pedestal, but it hurt men also. And she was always, anytime she's pointing out something of discrimination about women, she always mm-hmm. would, would like, like to be able to show how it discriminates against men as well. Thank you so much, Stephen, for being here. I've read about you for you. years and meeting you in the 
The Flash and those letters are fascinating. Thanks well, for thank bringing you. them. Thank you. Next, we'll speak with Sharon Cohen, a woman whose case for equality RBG fought back in the 70s. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. All right, so let's talk about some of the other big cases that Justice Ginsburg, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, argued, Jeffrey, before the Supreme Court. Uh, One of them is a famous case, Frontiero v. Richardson. And joining us now is formerly Sharon Frontiero, now Sharon Cohen, who served as a lieutenant in the U.S. Air Force after she graduated from college. Sharon, thanks for being here. Thank you. Tell us how you ended up suing the Secretary of Defense, Elliot Richardson. Well, I was 23 years old. I was straight out of college, just like you said. I had just gotten married, and I realized that I wasn't getting the housing allowance that men were getting, married men were getting. And it was not insignificant. I was making about $500 a month for my base salary, and the housing allowance was another 120 a month. It was enough to get an apartment. So I thought it was a mistake. I started going through the the channels you go through, the payroll office, the personnel office, and, you know, I was very young. And I look back, and I'm almost embarrassed at how young I was at 23. But even though I started hearing, um, um, what do you expect? Your husband should be supporting you. You're lucky we let you in the service at all. Ugh. Even though I started hearing that, I still thought it was an administrative mistake. I thought somehow they just don't understand that I got married, and I have to present the right set of documents. Um, I was stationed in Montgomery, Alabama at Maxwell Air Force Base, and Montgomery has always been a civil rights uh, kind of percolator, and that's where the Southern Poverty Law Center was. So we went and talked to a lawyer there who was really the first person who said to me, there is no administrative remedy for this. This is um, endemic sexual discrimination. And if you want to file a lawsuit, we'd be very happy to file a lawsuit for you. And it was at that point, um, you know, I had gone from being really naive and just wanting my money 
to being a little bit pissed off at what I was hearing. You do say you didn't and actually bring this case because you're a feminist. You brought it because you needed the money. Yes, I wasn't a feminist. I was, I was um, again, I was really young, and I was uh, from a blue-collar, hard-working family. I put myself through college. I really, a lot of stuff was going on around me that I just was not aware of. I was just focused on my own personal life, you know? Mm-hmm. So um, when I started hearing this stuff, you know, I liken it to somebody who gets a hearing aid. This is what I've heard from people who get a new hearing aid. Their expectation is that they're going to very clearly hear the person they're talking to, but the reality is they hear everything in the room. And I think when I started hearing what I was hearing, I started hearing it all. And that's the point at which I became a feminist. And it was a heady time for feminism. Um, There were a lot of consciousness-raising groups and books out, and, you know, there was a lot of stuff going on. The ERA was barreling through the states. We didn't expect it to stop barreling. It did, but... The Equal um, Rights Amendment, yeah. Yeah. How how did the case get from the Southern Poverty Law Center to Ruth Bader Ginsburg? The Southern Poverty Law Center, um, my my lawyer there was Joe Levin, um, um, filed um, the case at the Supreme Court, and it's my understanding that the ACLU... Um, uh, filed an amicus brief, and that um, he gave her 10 out of the 30 minutes of the oral argument. I think he did 10, she did 10, he did 10 mm-hmm. of the oral oral argument. So she, she appeared as, she was not your lawyer. official lawyer, she, she was amicus. But, but w- w- was this an example of how the law made assumptions about a male breadwinner oh, yeah. versus a female breadwinner, because the, the, the assumption underlying the law was that, you know, a, a male breadwinner in the armed services needed the money uh, for, for his family. And the idea that there might be a female breadwinner just didn't occur to the people or they didn't care or they opposed it, um, the, the people who set up this administrative structure. Right. It was actually a little bit more complicated than that. It was that a woman could file to have her husband declared dependent on her, um, but it was pretty onerous, and I would have had to have supplied 76% of all of our family's income. He had to be Mm. dependent on me for more than 50% of Mm. his income for us to have him declared a dependent, Um, whereas men automatically got it. And my husband had some GI benefits, he was in school, he had a part-time job at night. You know, we were young people who were scrabbling together a bunch of jobs, just like the man I was working with. Um, So it wasn't exactly that women could never get the housing allowance. It was just very onerous, and every Mm -hmm. single one of us had to prove it, whereas men never had to prove it. They could be married to a Rockefeller and not have to prove it. So you lose initially, though you lose in, in oh, yeah. front of we the, dis- in, um, the district court panel. We were in a district court, mm-hmm. and I think that my lawyer—I well, certainly expected to win. 
you know, it seemed like such a patent injustice to me. It seemed like such a slam dunk that anybody with half a brain would say, oh, yeah, this isn't fair. Um, but the two of the three judges in the, in the three-judge federal panel said that because there were so many men and so few women, it, it was administratively inconvenient to get the government to ask all men Jeff, to go Tub- through Tubin's process. laughing at this. No, I mean, it doesn't even make sense on its own terms. Oh, you know what? The- that argument. I mean, yeah. I mean, because it should be administratively harder because there's so many more men, right? Yeah. Than, than there are than there are women. I mean, it's yeah. just it's ridiculous. The line was the line was women are not being denied a right. Um, men are being given a windfall. Wow. Right. So the Southern Poverty Law Center and the ACLU um, obviously see it differently. This gets brought up, you know, this gets heard by the Supreme Court, of course. And mm-hmm. let's listen to part of Ruth Bader Ginsburg arguing in front of the court. In asking the court to declare sex a suspect criterion, Amicus urges a position forcibly stated in 1837 by Sarah Grimke, noted abolitionist, an advocate of equal rights for men and women. She spoke, not elegantly, but with unmistakable clarity. She said, I ask no favor for my sex. All I ask of our brethren is that they take their feet off our necks. And you won. Yeah. Well, but you didn't, I think but... we won. We won. It was eight to one. I think Rehnquist dissented. Um, but four of the justices um, were on our side on basis of strict scrutiny, and the other four on the basis of rational uh, basis. Is that right? Th- th- that's right. And, and that goes back to a, a conversation Poppy and I were having earlier, um, which remains an unresolved area of, of constitutional law, which is whether discrimination against women under the 14th Amendment is treated exactly the same way as discrimination on the basis of race. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. Race uh, has traditionally been the area where there is strict scrutiny, where the court will almost never justify any sort of distinction. It remains somewhat murky what the standard is for discrimination on the basis of of gender. And that division is reflected in the four to four yeah. distinction between the justices who are all on your side, but but un, under under different reasons. That, that she didn't reasons. that she didn't yeah. have this plurality of justices on the court establishing in their opinion that 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 gender discrimination is inherently suspect. Correct. 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 Yeah. I remember when I when I interviewed uh, Justice Ginsburg for my for my New Yorker story, she told me a story about and, and I think it was your case okay. because I think it involved the Department of Defense is that when the Department of Defense filed their brief in in one of the cases where she was she was the the lawyer as an example of how upsetting to the system it would be if the plaintiff won the 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 judges said the the defense department said look at all these other rules that we have that treat men and women differently these law these rules would have to be thrown out as well <laughs> and for ginsburg this was an incredible gift yeah. 
because because she then said we're going to attack all, all of these them. rules. Thank you for putting them all in one place. We could never have found them ourselves. Yeah, thank you for opening that closet door. Right, and that was your case, wasn't it? I know. I don't know, but that's very oh. funny. Yes, no, but but it was that she tells that story with 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 such delight. Yeah. That that the that the you know Department of Defense essentially did her work for her of sure. ferreting out every place that they discriminate against women. We talked to a lot of reporters during that time, my husband and I, and and we were young. They were young. They were happy to chat with us, and I remember one of them. Uh, told us that the unhappiest people they had talked to were the Defense Department's lawyers. Hmm. They really wanted to be on our side. It's interesting. Well, you, you, had, you had said, Jeff, in a previous uh, episode of the podcast, uh, you know, for the, the, the VMI decision uh, that, that Justice Ginsburg wrote the majority opinion for, she cited... Um, you know, some of the cases that she'd argued before the court. Do you know if this was, was one of them? I, I, I don't know off the top of my head, but certainly, I mean, we, we, are, we are privileged to talk to. I mean, this is no joke. I mean, Stephen Weisenfeld and Sharon Frontiero Cohn are major figures in American legal history because their names are attached to these civil rights landmarks. And mark this in history for us. How significant well, I mean, this was an especially important case, the, the, front, the, the Frontiero case, because the justices were always and to this day very differential to anything involving military judgment. That if the mil, you know, like the the justices often say, like we're not going to second guess the military. Yeah. We're not going to tell them how to run their business. You know, how to how to run a war. We're not going to tell them. Uh, so so the fact that, you know, Sharon's case established the principle that even though on army bases mm-hmm. or you know, any ar- branch of the armed services, most of the officers and most of the enlisted people are men, you can't treat women differently financially. And it's, it's, it's an enormously important principle, both as a legal matter, but also socially, that it was one of the many uh, changes in the society that told women, you know what, you can go in the armed services, you can make a career in the military. And that, you know, has had enormous implications for how, you know, what kind of military we have. You're so right to note how fascinating it is and fortunate we are to have Sharon Cohen, Sharon Frontiero with us. Thanks so well, much. Thank you. And thank you all for listening to our 70s episode of RBG Beyond Notorious. On the next and final episode, we will go back to the beginning. We'll talk about how RBG got her start in the legal profession in the 50s and the 60s. On the Law Review, Ruth was treated with reverence because we knew how good she was. Her story continues next. Don't forget to watch the CNN film RBG this fall. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.